Well, good morning, Branch Church. It is an absolute blessing to be with you this morning in the new year, as well as to be in a, a new place. What a blessing, what a, an encouragement of God's grace in our lives tangibly that we can see this morning. It's amazing how many things in life we are reduced to believing just based off of what somebody else tells you. For example, nutrition labels. How many of you can look at your food and you just know how many calories are in it? You could tell me the grams of fat. You could tell me the protein content, the carbs. You could even go so far to tell me the minerals and the vitamins, exactly which ones and how much. No, we don't know that. We're trusting that whoever did it is telling us the truth. This is all of our life. How many of you ever driven over the Coronado Bridge? How do you know that's safe? I'm not trying to scare anybody. <laughs> You're trusting that somebody structurally built that and okayed the city to let many cars drive across it. I'm really gonna go for it. Vaccines. <laughs> We're really putting our trust in people who tell us what's in it, how much is in it. You really don't know. How about the news? Were you really there? Did you see what happened? Did you interview? Did you check the newspaper article to make sure this guy's sources were really legit? I'm not trying to scare anybody. My point is simply this. We are reduced to believing so much in life based off of what somebody else tells us. We walk by faith more than we even realize. And the same thing is true with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We weren't there. I'm not an eyewitness. I can't tell you 100% that I was there and saw it because I wasn't. I don't have a video recording. I can't show it to you, but I believe God has given us something even better than video or anybody else. He's given us eyewitness testimony. Now you've probably heard that there were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I wanna take you on a journey though through these eyewitnesses and I want you to experience their struggle. I want you to see how Jesus brought them out of it and how, and this is what we're gonna learn this morning as we study John chapter 20, how Jesus' historical resurrection, it gives enough eyewitness evidence to where you don't have to be an eyewitness yourself. There is enough evidence for you to believe without you having to have seen it for yourself. You've heard the phrase, seeing is believing. Well, biblically, with the resurrection of Christ, with the truth of Jesus, believing is seen. And we'll see at the end of the narrative that Jesus will pronounce a blessing, the favor of God upon those who believe and they haven't even actually seen it. If you have your Bibles, turn with me please to John chapter 20. We're beginning in verse one together. As you're turning there, I wanna set the stage for you. There will be three encounters this morning. Jesus will encounter Mary Magdalene, then the disciples, and then lastly, Thomas. In each of these encounters, there's a little bit of a formula. It begins with each one's struggle. There's a, there a unique struggle that each one has. And in that struggle, they're gonna be met with resurrection evidence. And the evidence will vary and be different for each person. They will respond to the evidence and then Jesus will have a final command or direction for that group or for that person. Now, this is really fun. There's the formula. And then as we go through each person, each group, it's gonna get more intense the struggle gets harder. The evidence gets more evident. The response grows and climaxes with one of the greatest confessions in all of scripture. 
And the commands of Jesus begin with one person and then reach to the entire world. I know you can hardly wait. Let's do it. John chapter 20, verse one. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. This is Sunday morning. Mary Magdalene, she's not by herself, but John is highlighting her by herself for this particular text. And she goes and she finds the first piece of evidence. The stone has been removed that was in front of his tomb. Now, Mark tells us it's light out. John tells us it's dark. I bring this up because I don't want anyone to bring this up and try to confuse you about the truth of the Bible. I think there's an easy explanation here. You know, when the sun comes up and the light is touching certain parts of the land, but not all of it, and it's still kind of dark, I think it's the same idea. John is just simply highlighting how early in the morning it is, the dark places. So you think about Lion King, the sun hits the pride lands, but it doesn't hit where the hyenas are. It's kind of something like that. Now, this is just a historical side point, but Jesus' stone that was rolled away, there are two different versions of what it could be. It could be a round circular disc where it was levied into place. It could take several men to levy it out, or it could just be like a big plug in which they would plug it up. Which one is it? I wish I could tell you, but I wasn't there. But I did look at this article last night that was interesting on biblical archaeology, very fat, very uh, fancy. And... They were saying in the second temple period, so this is just before Jesus's time, that 900 tombs were surveyed. Only four tombs had the round circular disc shape that actually went in front of the tombs. So normally we picture the round disc in our children's books and so forth, but there's a really high chance that Jesus's stone didn't look like that. It might've been more of the plug. I don't know for sure, but four out of 900, it doesn't give us good odds to say that it was. And those four that were, they were wealthy people. So people like Herod, they moved the stone. They put more of his family members in. Anyway, just a little historical side note for you. But what does she do when she sees this first piece of evidence? Verse two. So she ran and she went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. In case you were wondering who had a faster 40 yard dash time, John does. Now, I don't think John is trying to highlight how fast he is. He's just trying to highlight that he got there first, but he does give props to Peter. Peter's going to go in the tomb first. So I don't think John is just trying to show off. He's just historically describing it and here's what he's given us. Verse five, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. More evidence. There's the linen, which Jesus was wrapped in. For some reason, it's on the ground, which is interesting because it was full of 75 pounds of spices. And then this is really interesting. The face cloth is folded up over here on the side. Now, if somebody were to steal Jesus's body, this is very weird. Why would you steal the body and then take time to clean up after yourself? It's like someone coming in your house, stealing your television and then folding a couple pieces of laundry for you before they go. Like, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense for them to do that. Verse... 
Verse 8, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must, the strong verb here, he must, it is absolutely necessary that he rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. Mary is weeping. She is bawling. She is hurting here. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? I don't think they're really trying to know the answer. They're trying to get her to think of, why are you doing this? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Hmm. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Same question, whom are you seeking? D.A. Carson points out that this question from Jesus is to help her indicate whom you are looking for. In other words, consider whom you're trying to find. You're trying to find Jesus. Remember all that he did. Remember all that he said. She needs to compute this and she's not quite able to compute it just yet. She is struggling here. Now, supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the, to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. What happened when Mary was met with her first piece of resurrection evidence, the stone being rolled away from the tomb? She concludes that someone has stolen the body. That's what she came to believe. Now, this is very visceral for Mary. So you have to feel for her here. It's easy to look back and say, oh, silly person, just get it together. Can't you see all that we can see from our 2020 looking past vision? But this is serious. She's hurting. She goes and she, what does she do? She tells Peter and John, presumably we believe it's John, the one whom Jesus loved. And then she goes and, and she's now looking to actually find his body. So what's her struggle here? She's confusion. She is confused about the resurrection evidence. She sees it, but she doesn't know how to interpret it. She's internally struggling. And you can imagine, right? Someone takes the body of someone you love and you don't know where it is. You don't know if they're tampering with it or whatever. You want it back. I thought about it. If I were to, God forbid, lose one of my kids and I found out someone stole their body, I would passionately want to retrieve it and aggressively take it from them. That's my kid's body. Don't you dare touch it. So we can definitely feel for Mary at this moment. She's confused. She doesn't know how to process this. So now she's on this hunt. I'm going to find the body, probably give it a proper burial, and everything will be okay. We'll get back to normal. John points out what's going on here. She didn't understand. They did not understand from the scriptures that he had to rise from the dead. What scriptures should she have known? Where in the Bible should she have known this? Turn with me to Psalm 16, beginning in verse 10. This is the opening psalm that we started with, and we did it for a reason. Not only does it highlight the glory of God, but it says something messianic about Jesus. Psalm 16, beginning in verse 9. David writes, he says, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. 
my flesh also dwells secure. Why is David so happy? Why is David rejoicing? Verse 10, here's why. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Sheol is the grave. God will not leave his soul in the grave. He will bring him to God. And this is what he says in the second part. Or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, David's body went into the ground. It has stayed in the ground and it has decayed and and, and decomposed. His body has not been brought up. So in the second half of verse 10 here, when he says, nor let your Holy One see corruption, this wouldn't be true of him. So who is he talking about? He has to be talking about somebody else. Who do we find that is? It's Jesus. It's the Messiah. And we know, we know this too because in Acts chapter 2, when Peter is trying to demonstrate that Jesus rose from the dead, he cites this verse. Paul, when he tries to show them that Jesus rose from the dead, according to the scriptures, in Acts, I believe, chapter 13, he cites the same verse. I want to show you one more. Go with me to Isaiah 53 verse 12. A few books to your right, Isaiah 53, verse 12. Isaiah writes and he says this, therefore, this is speaking of the suffering servant who we will come to know as the Messiah here really shortly. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. This person is gonna get a portion and a spoil. In other words, it's a picture of victory. There's going to be some kind of victorious celebration and receiving they're going to get. But notice when they get it. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Because he died, then he will thus get the spoil. He died, he will have a portion with the many. So in order to get that, what happened to happen here? He had to have been raised from the dead. So Isaiah 53, 12 is a very clear picture of the resurrection. And we know this death was not a common death because as you read the rest of the verse, it tells you what kind of death this was. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This was a death that paid for sin. It was a death that made sin removed so that people could come back and be reconciled in relationship to God again. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not merely a New Testament idea. This is not something that Christians invented. This comes right out of the Jewish scriptures. And the best way to see the resurrection, one of the best ways to come out of confusion is to see the overarching story of the whole Bible. We call it the historical redemptive story. It's history and in the history, it's redemption. God is redeeming, he is saving his image bearers. He is saving mankind. The Bible is not a bunch of loosely moral stories compiled to teach you how to be a good person. The Bible is not a bunch of Bible hero stories where we're supposed to follow and act like all these people. No, these people fail. There's one hero. It's God. It's Jesus. The Bible is one overarching story of God rescuing you and me from our sins, bad attitudes, idolatry, and rejection of God. Can I get a witness? So most modern TV shows kind of go like this. You have an episode and then that episode will have a season and then that season will have multiple seasons. The one episode will have a storyline and that will be kind of a small storyline, but it still connects to the big season and they all connect. And then that one season will have a big overarching storyline that will connect to all the seasons. The Bible is the same way. 
when you read the stories of Ruth or Boaz or Cain, Abel, Adam, Eve, David, Bathsheba, when you read the stories of Mary, Mary Magdalene, Peter, Paul, it is one giant story they're all connected to of God doing what? Saving his people from their sins. Now, Mary didn't understand this. She's stuck in her confusion. She can't even see Jesus who's right in front of her. She's weeping so bad. Maybe she was kept from seeing him. That's kind of what I think, but I don't know for sure. But what, how does Jesus pull her out of her confusion? He says her name, Mary. At that point, the scales come off and she notices it's Jesus. He's alive. I know that voice. What happened here? Jesus called to her. That's the same thing he does to us. John chapter 10, what does the shepherd do? He calls his sheep by name and they follow him. Jesus says, the sheep know my voice and they follow me. Are you confused at the resurrection evidence and you don't know how to interpret it? Listen for the call of Jesus Christ. He calls you to believe. He calls you to come into the fold, to know God as Father. And if you hear that calling, respond. And you say, I believe. You call him Lord, you call him Savior, and he will be your everything. And for those of you who have answered that call, what a gracious Savior to have called you by name. He didn't have to, but he did. Isn't that wonderful? And then Jesus, he ends this giving her a command. Go tell the disciples, I'm going to ascend to the Father. Now he says, don't cling to me. This is not bad. He's not like, get off me. You're like, it's nothing like that. <laughs> Break, get, get off me, back up. No, it's don't hold on to me. This is not what life is going to be like now. We're going to be just a happy family on earth. There's still a part of the salvation process that needs to be completed. He needs to ascend to the right hand of the Father and rule over the earth, giving all the power to him. He hasn't done that just yet. A few things here that are really interesting. When he says that I'm ascending, this is another piece of evidence he is giving to her that should go to the disciples and should incite faith. Go with me back to John chapter 14, verse 28. There is a final discourse in which Jesus prepares his followers for his departure. John 14, 15, 16, 17. We spent four weeks talking about it. Listen to this, John 14, verse 28. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going where? To the Father. He made it very clear he's going to go. He will ascend. He will leave. He says, for the Father is greater than I. Not greater in nature. They are both God, but greater presumably in position within the Godhead, the Father-Son relationship. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you might what? Believe. When Mary is told this, I'm ascending, she should believe. When she goes to tell the disciples he's ascending, what should they do? This is exactly what he said. He's going to the Father. They don't even need to see him because his word is sufficient to enable them to believe. Jesus also said, I'm going to my Father, your Father, my God, your God. What's key here is that repetition, my. When he says my and your and brings them together, what is he doing? He is including them in the shared privileges of now knowing God. Jesus has a unique relationship to the Father. He's the unique Son of God, fully God, the Word, 
and fully man, the word become flesh. We've studied this in John. Now the disciples get to share in that. They get to call God Father and God as well. Not in the exact maybe sense that Jesus does as a unique son, but we share in that humanity. We share in that same wonderful relationship. And you might think, I don't know, Sean. Jesus has an encounter with one woman. She shows up in the dark. I mean, how much could she really see? She's bawling her eyes out. She didn't even notice Jesus at first, linen on the ground, a cloth folded up. Like, who knows, right? People graffiti stuff all the time. Maybe they showed up and messed with the tomb before she got there. Who really knows? Well, the narrative continues. John 20, verse 19. The next episode here will be Jesus and the disciples. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and he said to them, peace be with you. This is most likely a salvation peace that has been accomplished and now is extended to them. Salvation peace between you and God. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Why is he doing this? Because he was just crucified three days earlier. And there are marks that clearly show this was me. He was nailed to the cross. The spear stabbed him in the side. It was clear that it was him and nobody else. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And, he, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. Them, if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So what piece of resurrection evidence did the disciples get to see? Well, they heard Mary come. He's ascending. There was the stone rolled away. There's the linen cloth. There's the, the face cloth rolled up on the ground. And now they get another piece. Jesus shows up and he shows them his hands, specifically his wrists and his side. How do they respond? Well, before we talk about that, what was their struggle? Mary was confused. What was their struggle? They were afraid. They were fearfully hiding. Why were they hiding? They were afraid to get the same fate as their master. Again, it's easy to pick on people in scripture. Come on, guys, get it together. What's wrong with you? Don't you know who you serve? Get out there. Be proud. Hit your chest. Let's go. Come on. But when you put yourself in their sandals, thank you. <laughs> when you put yourself in their sandals, you can see where they're coming from. They found out the Jews don't play. We'll hand you over to be crucified. We don't have a problem with that. They found out Rome doesn't mess around. We will publicly crucify you to a cross like a billboard on a freeway so everybody can see you. So you can see why they're hiding. Now they were still wrong. They were missing it. But at least we can begin to feel their human weakness as we explore and God give us strength within our own human weaknesses. But Jesus shows up, shows them hands, side. What do they do? They're glad. They're glad. We don't get much out of them right here but they're glad, they seem to be thankful that they've seen the risen Lord and it goes right into what Jesus wants them to do. And what does Jesus do? Kind of two things here. One, he wants to send them out to now tell everybody he's alive. You want us to do what? They're, high, they're doing the very opposite of what he wants. But now he is going to take men who are afraid and he's gonna take them out of that fear and enable them to tell the world that he exists. And this is part of the resurrection as believers. We're not meant to just know this, we're meant to share this. People are, Jesus wants to know, Jesus wants people to know that he's alive. How many people in your life would know he's alive based on the way you live your life? 
or share his grace or talk about his glory. The hope is that they would have some measure of understanding and increasing that and know that I have a savior who truly lives. And then he breathes on them the Holy Spirit. Now this is a little bit maybe confusing. We're gonna make it really simple. The spirit does not come until Acts 1. Tongues of fire, the spirit comes down, they speak different languages. People hear the gospel in their own language. When John says he breathed on them the spirit, it's probably, as D.A. Carson says, an enacted parable. In other words, John is squishing all this information together at the end of his gospel instead of writing a whole second volume like Luke did. So this isn't two comings of the spirit. This is an enacted parable, something that will happen later. And John is just condensing this together. And then he tells them this, if you forgive them, they're forgiven. If you don't, they don't. So what does this mean? Did the disciples get to decide who's saved and who's not? Yeah, you look good. No, not you. I'm not happy with you today. You're not forgiven. No, that wouldn't be very good at all, I don't think. And I don't think Jesus gives them that kind of power. What's happening here is the same thing that Matthew talks about with binding and loosening. Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. Jesus tells the disciples, what you will bound has already been bound in heaven. What you will loose on earth has already been loosed in heaven. So binding and loosening has to do with forgiveness and unforgiveness. They don't get to decide. They get to declare what's already declared in heaven. And God declares, if you believe upon the son, he is your Lord and savior, your sins are forgiven. If you do not believe, you're not forgiven. And we as pastors, as disciples, as servants, we can say the same thing to people. If someone clearly rejects the gospel, we have the ability to say, according to scripture, you're not forgiven. And that's just the way it is. Not because we don't want you to be saved, but because that's the reality. So get right with God. <laughs> that's why we preach the gospel. So there's no power here to do what they want. They merely have power to share and execute what God has already said to be true. Be very careful though about telling who you think is saved and who's not. At the end of the day, it can be a very difficult task. I made this mistake as a Bible teacher and I'm not sure how it happened, but I had this small group of seniors and we started talking about it. And I think one of them had asked me, who do you think is saved and who do you think is not? And I bit <laughs> and I started going around and doing it. And later on, I, I realized that wasn't a good thing. Lord, forgive me. I shouldn't have done that. My hope is that in my weakness, that God will use that to maybe wake some of them up who I look at your life and go, you know, I just, it's hard for me to see it. I'll just say that. <laughs> well, I don't know, Sean, a bunch of guys hiding in a room Apparently, Jesus shows up and shows them a scar. I mean, maybe this was a magic trick. Maybe he just put marker on his hand or something, whatever they had back then. I mean, you've seen Shin Lim, right? On America's Got Talent. He takes a card and then puts it in his shirt and makes it disappear and then shows you and it like tattoos on his chest somehow. You're like, how did you do that? Maybe, maybe Jesus is this great ancient magician. Story's not over yet. Verse 24. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the disciples came to him, we have seen the Lord. Can you imagine that? You're the only one who wasn't there and everyone comes to you. We've seen it. Yeah, very funny, guys. Very funny. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas says something really interesting. He uses a double negative, I will no not believe. In the Greek, that is very emphatic for I won't believe at all, not a chance. 
not going to happen unless this one specific set of condition. I want to see it and I want to touch it. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and he stood among them and he said, peace be with you the third time. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it into my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Here's the message for you and for us this morning. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the one sent by God. He is the son of God and that by believing you may have what? You may have life in his name. What piece of evidence did Thomas get? Thomas got all the testimony of everybody else. He didn't see Jesus's hands inside. He doesn't see the tomb. He didn't see the linen. He didn't see the face cloth. He didn't see the angels. Thomas kind of felt bad for him. He got the short end of the stick, right? He didn't get to see anything of what they got to see. He's just hearing it. And then what does he say? Not a chance. I want to see it myself and I want to touch it. Not just his hand. I want to touch his side. Jesus shows up to him and Jesus calls him on it. Go ahead, touch it. Actually, he doesn't say that. It's a command. Thomas, do it. He commands him to touch and to see at that point, Thomas doesn't even need to touch it. And he makes one of the greatest climactic confessions in all of scripture. He says, my Lord and my God, this is one of my personal favorites. I say this probably daily. One of my most favorite things to say, because it really encompasses so much of who Jesus is, resurrected Lord ruler in charge of the earth, speaks of his power, his resurrection. God, it speaks of his true divinity from all eternity, what he was with the father and what he remained when he became flesh and died in our place and rose from the dead. I love this confession. I hope it can be one of your favorites as well. I also want to prepare you for someone who might try to make this confession not so exciting for you. So I've done a lot of witnessing to Jehovah's Witness in the past, and one of them said, this is how it went, my Lord. And then he looks up, oh my God. And I was like, no, 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 no. He speaks to Jesus, my Lord and my God. There is no evidence that he took a step back and said, oh my God. And there's no evidence in the rest of scripture that they spoke like that, oh my God. Like we just don't find that. It's a bad explanation. (laughs) Another one tried to tell me that the date of tent, they're getting to the Greek now. It's like, let's go, right? Date of tents. There's different... Um, grammatical things that can happen. There's, there's nominatives, accusatives, genitives, datives. Very fun. Dative is this indirect use of language. And so they'll go, oh, it's an indirect dative. That means he's indirectly or speaking through and around Jesus, but really to the Father. Very clever, but not good. I studied almost all of John and getting to teach you since June. Besides two sermons, I have touched every word in the Greek. And the dative is used a lot. And there's no way you can take the way John uses the dative and say that he's speaking around or through Jesus and really to God. In that case, when Jesus uses the dative and he speaks to people, is he not really speaking to them? Oh, but it counts here, but no. Thomas is clearly talking to Jesus and gave an incredible confession, Lord and God, specifically son of God sent by the father. 
And then Jesus declares this blessing. Blessed are those who have, who have not seen and yet have believed. You don't have to have been there to truly trust and believe that this happened. God has given enough resurrection evidence. He calls us. He fulfills his word. He leads and draws us. He's given us everything we need to believe on him as the resurrected savior of our sins and Lord of our life. Now, looking at these three episodes, there were great struggles here. There was, Mary was confused. The disciples were scared out of their minds. And Thomas, a follower of Jesus, was an open doubter, not having it at all. After everything he's seen of him, not gonna happen, not going to believe. But what happened when struggle met the power of the resurrection? What happened when struggle met the living Jesus? He transformed them. He turned confusion into joy. He took fear and turned it into gladness. He took doubt and turned it into one of the greatest confessions in all of scripture. That's what the power of the resurrection does. And you see in their struggles, there was no consensus here. They didn't have doctrine already written and filled out and ready for Jesus to sign it. There was no groupthink. These people were sincerely struggling. And I think in a sense, if I may go this far, as an analogy, I think that their struggles represent a lot of the people's struggles today. Whether it be you're confused or you're afraid or you're just straight up doubting, I need a lightning bolt. I want a lightning bolt within this little sanctioned square and if I don't get it, I will not believe. Have you ever had someone say that to you? Maybe you felt that. God will not give evidence based on what you want or think. And even if he did, you still wouldn't believe. You need the son of God to call you by name and to open your eyes and to take your confusion and to turn it into faith. That means we call out to him and believe upon him. As a child would get a toy and then get another toy like it and then want another toy like it and then want another toy like it, we get to the point where we go, you know what? You don't really need another toy. You need to change your attitude to contentment with what you have. The same thing is true with the resurrection evidence. You don't need more evidence. You need to change your attitude toward the evidence that is given to you. Will you believe or will you not? And if you will believe, we can declare to you that your sins will be forgiven. If you will not believe, then your sins are not, and you will pay for all the evil that you have thought, done, and acted upon for your entire life. And that really is separation from God from all of eternity. So what will it be today? Will you believe? Oh, I pray that you would. Leave you with this story. There was a man who had a daughter, and the daughter grew up and she moved away. And if later on in life, she sends him a wedding invitation to come to her wedding. And he reads it and he goes, you know, uh, just weddings aren't great for me. And I probably won't get to see her very much. I'll see her after the wedding. I'm sure she won't mind. <laughs> Two years later, he gets another letter inviting him to come in to see his first grandchild. He's like, oh, cute boy. I just don't know. You know, I like the boys when they're a little bigger and they can wrestle. Like, I'll wait till he grows up to go visit him. Few. More years go by and he's invited now to Christmas. And he's like, oh, work's really hectic. I don't really want to travel. I'll see them after Christmas. And then a short, short time later, he gets a phone call that his daughter has died. He falls to his knees and he realizes I will never see her again. What's the point? Today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow. Your tomorrow is not promised you. Jesus has died for sins, for your sin, and he has resurrected in order to give you 
life and relationship with the Father? What will it be? I pray you will not turn down, but that you would respond to his call of grace. Amen. Jesus' historical resurrection, it's enough eyewitness evidence for you to believe without even having to have seen it yourself and for you believers to declare it without doubt. Believers, Jesus wants the world to know that he exists and he has called the church to be his hands and his feet. I look at this new building as kind of a, a new, a re-church plant in a sense. And we are this new light on a hill and I wanna hit the community running. I want us to know our neighbors. I looked up, there are 20 schools within five miles of us all around us. I don't know how many kids that is, but that's a lot of children who don't know the Lord. A lot of teachers who don't know the Lord. Here's what I want to do. I visualize it like this. I want to build bridges from this church to our neighbors, to our community, to the schools, to the businesses. And building bridges is a lot more than a one person job. I need all of us to do it together. Whether you are praying or giving financially or giving of your time or your talent. I wanna get in the schools. This is one thing I've been thinking about. 2024 goals, this is one of them. I want us to make a relationship with an elementary, one junior high and one high school, where we are somehow in there. We're building a relationship and we build that bridge so they could come and worship God with us or at least meet us somewhere on that bridge and you can share the risen Lord who saves from sins with them, amen? Here's how I wanna respond this morning. We're gonna pray. Building bridges starts with praying. The gospel going out, it starts with praying. I heard someone, I don't know who said it. I bet you Chuck probably knows. Prayer does, prayer does not prepare you for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. And so here's what I want. We are gonna stop and we are gonna pray, especially thinking of Matthew chapter 28, that we are to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all of Christ's words and to walk in them. So I'm gonna ask that you would, where you're at, pray by yourself, pray with someone next to you. You can turn in a group and pray. I really want us to stop and say, Lord, we are serious about giving you glory in your gospel. And then I will come and I will lead us together in prayer before we worship God with the last song. Amen? Amen, let's pray. Sorry to cut in, but we're going to come back together and finish praying as a church. I imagine the wonderful aroma of incense is just blessing God's nostrils, if we can picture it that way.
Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for all the work you did in moving to this church. I don't want the work to stop. I love all the gifting that you have, the knowledge and wisdom and the ability that you have, and I want to see it come together and to go out and to serve this world and save lost souls, whether it's your family members, whether it's people where you, lit, where you work, and people that are close to this building. I really want it to be a light that, that this church in eternity the Lord would smile and was glad to have planted this church and to have done his work here. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for calling us, uniting us, bringing us together. We pray that you would continue the unity of the Spirit. You'd give us a deep heart for your good news. First, to rest in it, to enjoy you, and then to know how to communicate that. Lord, give us boldness. You call the disciples to go out. Lord, inspire us. We are inspired for mission. Give us the words. Give us the love, give us the actions, give us the ability to disciple our children and our children's children. Have your way here. Lord, we praise you. You are the resurrected Lord and Savior. And I pray in a special way you would meet all of the people here and that would watch this later. And Lord, you would commune with them. Lord, you would draw them, you would comfort them, you would speak your scripture over them. Lord, you would fill their heart with the goodness and the joy that David spoke of in Psalm 16 as he sung, the joy that the disciples experienced after they got to know you in resurrection and went forth in boldness. What great evidence to us that you truly live. But the greatest evidence is that you call us today and you illuminate by your spirit to who you are. So may you continue to reveal yourself to us and fill us with you. And it's in Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen. amen.